And so we're back after just uh, a little hiatus here to finish some stuff up, get some other work-related stuff completed. And really here, we're you know, in connecting the dots, we're beginning to move towards a more tangible era in which you know the U.S. actually existed. And I think that's going to be easier for people to be able to, to take stuff away. Now, the reason we start off with English history in particular is because in creating the United States and what we believe in our ethos, we often forget that we are the product of a colonial time, a colonial nation. And if we are going to understand ourselves, in part we have to understand our parent country. I mean, this is true for the other nations here in the New World, be it Argentina or Brazil or Peru. A lot of these countries still hold architecture similar to their parent countries, um, you know, or the same language. You know, Argentina speaks Spanish, Brazil, Portuguese, and the Mediterranean architecture that exists in Central America and Mexico is very, very Spanish. And so, much like if we were going to study any one of those South American uh, countries, or even North American countries, we'd have to understand where the ethos of that country lies. Now, for instance, Canada has a more Eurocentric government system because they have a lot of French influence, obviously in Quebec, as well as a lot of English influence. And they're kind of a weird hybrid between Americanism and European-centric styles of government. But I think the big takeaway uh, for this podcast and the biggest thing that I can help promote or an idea that, that I could use your help in discovering is whether or not the national debt and our personal cash, how much money we take home, has the biggest effect on American politics. The, the, the beating heart that makes everything work in this country, regardless of political values, is money. I've been working on this, but I don't necessarily have this down, so I'd love your comments, um, obviously, which you can post uh, wherever you're listening this to, uh, uh, to this or on YouTube or if you're listening to this even on, on uh, Facebook or LinkedIn, if that's somehow you found this recording. Um, you know, it would be it would behoove us to understand ourselves before we go electing people to represent us. And I think the biggest way to start this really, in keeping with our timeline, is going right over to the Boston Tea Party. Just for some background on the Tea Party here, it really came out of what we talked about last time, the Seven Years' War, where England needed to have a way to to pay for this huge, massive war and incur a lot of debt. Now, in order to pay off that debt, they needed to have more income. Now, that's a basic principle that we all live by, but for some reason nowadays, we feel as though our nations don't operate this way. I remember there was a, an economics class that I took um, a, a while back where basically the teacher said, well, nations, national debt works differently than personal debt. And... It's true only in the sense that 
I can't inflate away any of my debt. I can't make, I can't print more currency. I mean, I can try, but I can, you know, that'll put me right in jail. But, you know, a nation has control of its currency in modern times. But the English solution to this was, um, and, and, and in the old colonial days, you know, you made money from your colonies primarily through tariffs uh, and indirect taxation. But the English felt as though, because we were the ones fighting the war against the French, that it was our job to pay for it. And so they instituted incredibly high tariffs uh, on primarily tea and cotton. These were goods that were, in the case of cotton, produced here in the U.S., then sent to England, then turned into shirts and clothing, and then sent back and sold at a higher price already. So what this basically did was jack up the price of both tea and everyday goods, as, as though your, your Coca-Cola would have gone up by a whole dollar, which might not sound like much, but you have to remember that in those days, you know, somebody might make, you know, a shekel a day. And so the cost of your everyday drink suddenly goes up. You know, that's going to affect your take-home pay, for sure. Cost of your shirts, that goes up. That, that really struck a nerve with the everyday citizen and with the elite alike. And the reason it struck a nerve, I think, with certainly our founders was the fact that they felt as though they were being taxed and tariffed without representation. And they petitioned the government. They did everything that they could in the legal sense of the terms that they, they felt they could do uh, to the British government, and it fell on deaf ears. Now, they asked the colonial governors, they asked the, the crown itself, and Washington especially, but these were men of high social standing that had they been Englishmen, I think the, the crown would have taken seriously. But it was the, as though the, the English had started to view the U.S. as kind of second-class citizens, where our argument was, we're under the monarchy, we support the crown, you know, we should have equal representation, but we're not getting that. And the English response was either no response or to crack down with either the courting of soldiers or uh, an increase in tariffs or uh, arrests. It wasn't treating us as though we were, our complaints were legitimate. And this was done mostly because they didn't want to tax the people at home and face unrest uh, on, the, on the English continent itself. And as a result, the founders and the supporters of the uh, revolutionaries essentially uh, did what they had to do. They were not going to let this continue. And they, in protest, threw the, 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 the tea into the harbor, not because they didn't like tea, but because there was nothing, uh, there was nothing else to demonstrate their frustration other than essentially saying your tea is worthless we're throwing it into the harbor and the english response was again more tyranny more punishment more military quartering it was not something that diffused the situation regardless 
I think this still, in some respects, taints us today. Taints us. Really talks to us today. You know, we see healthcare as the biggest issue. Not necessarily because we care about being healthy, but look at our premiums. They've skyrocketed in the past few years. And now I would argue that the reason that they have is because of the overreach of the government that have that has essentially forced insurance companies to cover everyone. And because basic health insurance works on a, a pool of healthy people, well, now those healthy people are outnumbered by unhealthy people, therefore premiums go up. They've really created an issue that, that affects us all. Now, we, unlike our founders, do have a government that we can petition and vote in and, and, and be represented in, hence the change, peaceful change of power that, that typically goes on. But I don't think it's because the American people want their money being doled back out to them. I don't. I believe truly that because of our prior ethos, our notions of liberty, that when a government does overreach, we typically see a backlash against the government itself. And I think this is exemplified in the fact that socialists don't win in the middle of the country. Uh, most notably uh, in Kentucky, Amy McGrath is having a hard time fighting uh, Mitch McConnell as she is trying to be progressive but not brand herself as a socialist versus someone like a, like a Cortez out in New York can present herself as a socialist, pretty much a full-on communist, and still be elected into office because in an urbanized area, Obviously, one being New York in a blue district, it's much easier to run that way. But the idea that, that socialism or any sort of structure where the government controls top-down both society and our wallets, I think is unpalatable to many Americans. That the only reason that, that it even has credence and traction is due to a, a prevalence of multiculturalism and the unfortunate rise in illegal immigration. Now, I want to be careful here that I'm not talking about all immigrants, nor am I talking about a certain skin color or anything. But when you have a multicultural idea, it means that the dominant culture cannot assimilate immigrants into the, the ethos of the country. And what made America's immigration policies in the past so strong was that we openly embraced immigrants so long as they were willing to pledge their loyalty to the Constitution. Now, this didn't mean only immigrants of a certain color or only immigrants of a certain background. This could be anything. Um, you know, notably in the 1920s and 30s, you had this big influx of Irish and Italian immigrants who came over and wanted to learn English uh, the Irish, you know, famously had to learn English the right way. Um, that, that's a joke. And, you know, the Italians, too, they came over and, and uh, settled and wanted to learn English, wanted to become Americans, wanted to become naturalized. And they then, many of them, ended up taking arm, up arms against Italy in, in World War II, um, you know, and many of them were shipped back over to help 
um, if they knew English, um, you know, to help uh, to help talk with the locals during Operation Husky. It's not as though saying that we don't want multiculturalism and we don't want illegal immigration is against the American ethos. It's against the American ethos to do nothing when somebody comes in and has completely different ideas and a different way of seeing the world. I mean, if you imported a bunch of immigrants from Russia and then expected them to and didn't ex expect them to adopt the American way of life, why wouldn't they be more sympathetic to communism, especially if they remember the Soviet Union or were brainwashed into it? Or even uh, immigrants from, from Hungary or Poland that, that had been brainwashed into loving the communist system there and then were brought over here and were not corralled into, into assimilating into American life. Now, this simultaneously takes away from Americans' wallets. You, you hear about the immigration and job, uh, a job drain that, that essentially that illegals are, are taking jobs away from hardworking Americans. And now part, part of that is true, but I think we can expand on that to say that they, the, the American workers who can do blue-collar jobs and they're dwindling are seeing their wager, wages arbi arbitrarily uh, uh, lowered because regular economics says their wages should be going up because there's fewer of them, yet a bunch of cheap labor is being imported and that drives their, their costs down because these guys don't pay taxes, they don't pay anything because they're not on the books and they get paid whatever their the, the head of their little ring gets paid or decides to pay them and they are cheaper for employers to, to employ, to do manual labor. So not only do they take those jobs, they do it at a cheaper rate, they don't pay taxes, and that's where the frustration comes in. And that's where, here's where I think the takeaway is, but also here's where I, I think we could uh, really use your help in, in deciphering. Is it more so that American citizens are are worried about the, the nature of the country changing through immigration or is it that we are more worried about uh, our wallets not that we are fearful of other cultures and other peoples or are we afraid that we're not going to be able to feed our kids are we afraid that we're not going to be able to find that other job should we need it are we afraid that we're going to have to be skilled in something and specialized and are, is this just the, the symptom of, of a changing economy? Now, I don't think any of this, again, I don't think any of this discussion is racist or, or xenophobic or, or whatever you want to uh, uh, call it. I think it's a necessary conversation that we need to have because that American ethos that created this system of government and this constitution, I think, really comes back to the monetary aspect the freedom to do business with each other, and that requires certain rules to be in place. Now, we can change the rules, but, but that changes the American ethos. And are we willing to abandon that notion of freedom? 
Are we willing to abandon the ideals of the revolution? And that can't be decided by me or you. That's that's us as a collective. And I think that's the, the, the great divide right now that we see. And it's real and it's not going to be solved by any one politician. That's for sure. In fact, I believe it's going to be solved again by you and I. Now, and the final point I wanted to make here, um, really that kind of goes back and ties all of this in together, is the fact that our left and right are even are, are so different than the rest of the country. Rest of the country, rest of the... Our left and right is just so different than the rest of Europe. We forget that the Constitution was radical for its time, that the people are willing to tell the government what it can and can't do. The people are ruled by consent, that the people have the right to, to express themselves within the social contract. And the government cannot infringe on that. And that American conservatism is about protecting that constitution. It's not about protecting the old way of doing things as it was in Europe. Now, our left is similar to, or it's starting to become very similar to the European left and becoming more socialistic, almost communistic, but we still have the, the great schism between the two. We still have the left that cares about the Constitution, that cares about the rights of government, but just believes that laws should serve the will of the people instead of giving people the most liberty. And now you can get into that nuanced conversation all you want, but when you think about it, are we willing to give that uniqueness up? And how do we give that up? We give it up when we decide to retreat to our, our, our little shells and only converse with people who believe what we believe. And without the freedom to have a discussion, without the freedom to have a discourse. Does that mean we're also willing to give up our freedoms in other areas? So when we want the freedom to choose our healthcare providers and where our tax dollars are spent, if we're not willing to talk with each other, how are we willing to come to any sort of conclusion on that? Now, this all comes back to the American Revolution because these ideas were so radical for the time that we're still dealing with them. We're still figuring out how 284 years later how these fit into our daily lives. And how that affects our wallets. Again, it's, it's the biggest issue. And the more that we discuss these issues, the more that I'm convinced that, that it is about finance at the heart of everything. 
that if we're going to be free, we need financial freedom. And we can't have that and quote-unquote free programs in general. This has been the Connecting the Dots podcast, number three. This is about the American Revolution. I am Kevin Prendeville. You can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, or wherever you get your podcasts and media from. Be sure to check out our other shows where you can get more great content on a myriad of topics. Now, the reason that I am doing all of this is because I believe that true freedom comes from financial freedom. And I help people identify tens of thousands of dollars they are unknowingly and unnecessarily sending away to the financial institutions, government, and Wall Street. As an extension of all that, I believe in finding truth and freedom in our history and, more concretely, in our daily lives.